Galatians 5.16 introduces this section by saying, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And last week we pointed out that that's a positive way for you to overcome whatever struggles you may be facing. You don't necessarily have to knuckle down, buckle down and go after, you know, I got to get rid of that sin in my life, but begin to walk in the spirit of God, begin to delight yourself in the Lord, begin to abide in Christ and let God's word abide in you and you will ask for whatever you want and it will be done. It's a surefire way to see some changes happen in your life if you begin to walk in the spirit. One of those reasons is because there is the fruit of the spirit that follows walking in the spirit. If you walk in the flesh, the flesh brings corruption. If you walk in the spirit, it brings life. And we're going to be looking at the gifts, excuse me, the fruits of the Holy Spirit or the fruit of the Holy Spirit today. This passage introduces us to the fruit of the spirit. We will be considering today in a study entitled what everyone needs to know about the fruit of the spirit. And I really do believe that we are bringing up something that most often is not talked about when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And it has to do with the context of what we're reading, the context of how we got the fruit of the Spirit. Well, I want us to look at two passages that bracket this passage that help us to understand the context a little bit better. And that's Galatians 5.15. I just gave you Galatians 5.16, Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is Galatians 5, 15. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. So Paul is concerned about the contention that he sees in the region of Galatia, the churches that are there. In the deeds of the flesh, he brought up being contentious. He brought up having anger and outbursts of wrath. He brought up divisions or divisiveness as works of the flesh. And then you get to the end of this text, the very end of it in verses 25 and 26. And it says this, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. That's the point of this text. Walk in the spirit. Second time he brings it up. But then he says this, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. In other words, this whole section on the work of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit is to help us get along, is to help us walk in love towards one another, is to help us know how to deal with contentions. And when someone does something that is ungodly towards us, even Christians, and that might shock you that sometimes Christians do things that aren't Christian, at least how Christians should act. And in the way that in which we are supposed to respond, is extreme is revealed in a very powerful way in the passage that we are covering today. So the twice it says to walk in the spirit. And I want us to consider just a few things about contention before we get into this passage. First of all, the definition of contention is heated and, and heated argument. Uh, the uh, similar words to contention are dispute, argument, Variance, discord, hostility, conflict, enmity, strife, disharmony, quarreling, feuding, and arguments. And I would say that these are things that God does not want in the church. There's a passage in 2 Timothy that says, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, 
but be able to correct those who are in opposition with all gentleness, able to bring them to the knowledge of the truth. So when there's a difference or something that needs to be corrected, it should not be done through a quarrel, but it should be done through gentleness. Later on in the book of Galatians, chapter six, we're going to read that if someone is in sin, those of you who are spiritual, go to such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And we see this idea of not quarreling, of being gentle, of being kind and tenderhearted throughout the passages of the Bible. Let's just consider some of the things that the Bible has to say about contention. Proverbs has a lot to say of it, about it. I've left out some of the more quoted passages on contention about living in a home with a contentious woman. I've left those out. You can look them up later on if you want to. Proverbs 15:1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. This is just wisdom on how to live a life that isn't contentious. If you react and respond in a harsh way, then you are more likely to get harshness back. But a soft answer can turn away wrath. When someone is, says something harshly to you, you can answer in a soft way, but a harsh word will stir up anger. Proverbs 18, 19 says, a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. It's a pretty amazing statement, isn't it? A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. The idea would be, don't go around offending people. I'll put it in another way. Don't take offending someone as something light because it develops a very difficult situation that is hard to respond from. The same proverb goes on to say, and contentions are like bars on a castle. When you begin to contend, it's like putting bars up in a castle. There's no way to get to the heart of the issue. We could also use this exact teaching as a teaching on marriage, contention and arguments within marriage. It's been said, uh, well, married couples, there was a survey done years ago uh, for people that had been married 50 years or over. And they were asked the question, when did your marriage become really good? Now, if you're married only for a few years, I don't want this to discourage you, okay? I'm making a point by this. But people who were married for over 50 years were asked, what year did your marriage become really good? And the answer was at 34 years that it became really good. Part of that reason is because we just are contentious. It takes us a long time to learn not to be that contentious. And if you're at year 28, hang on. The best years are just around, the best years are just around the corner. Um, but anyway, we could use this as a, as a as a, a marriage teaching in a marriage conference. Proverbs 17, 14 says, the beginning of strife is like releasing water. Think of a dam breaking. Once the water is released, how are you going to get it back in again? How are you going to get it back into the dam again? The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before the quarrel starts. It's very powerful. Now, Titus 3.10 says, reject the device of man. This is a leadership passage. The book of Titus is a letter to, to Titus, who was a leader. And so he's writing him a letter and he says, reject the device of man after the first and second admonition. That is within church. If someone is divisive, we warn them. And if they continue to be divisive, we warn them again. 
And if they continue to be divisive, we reject them. And the word reject here literally is remove. We remove them. Now, if there is a repentance over the divisiveness, we would bring them back. We would restore them. But this is so important that you don't have divisiveness within the body because it can poison the entire body. Now, Peter talked about this whole idea as well in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. This is a very powerful section that Peter talks about it. He says, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion on one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessings, knowing that you were called to this. Our call is to love and to bless and to forgive and to be tender-hearted, knowing that you were called for this, that you may inherit a blessing. That is that God will bless us when we go out of our way to make good relationships with people around us. For he who would love life and see good days, and I'll, I'll just ask this question now, show of hands, how many of you guys want to love life and see good days? Most of you. The others of you, I'm just going to take it, we're lazy, didn't want to raise your hand. You're like, I don't want good days, all right? Thank you very much. I want bad days, I want horrible days, I want awful days. He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Remember, one of the Ten Commandments was not bearing false witness. It wasn't thou shalt not lie. That's not one of the Ten Commandments. I'm not saying lying's a good thing. Not at all. I'm just simply saying the command was not to bear false witness. Don't slander someone. It goes on to say, um, and his, speak seeking to, his lips speaking deceit, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who are doing evil. Again, the context of that is in loving one another, not tearing one another down, not biting and devouring one another. Ephesians 4 and I, I quote 432 regularly, but I want to read Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. This again is Paul, and he deals with the same topic with the church at Ephesus. He says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. By the way, I do think that that means cursing, and I think it means coarse jesting. There are those that try to say it, it doesn't, but I do believe it means that. Let no corrupt word come out of your mouth but what is good and necessary for edification, that you may impart grace to the hearers and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. One of the questions that I get a lot is, how do you grieve the Holy Spirit? What is it to grieve the Holy Spirit? And I'm sure there's more than one way in which you can grieve the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah, they grieve the Holy Spirit by rebellion. But being rebellious in attacking, devouring, biting and being contentious is rebellion as well. It says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That means you belong to God. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit because he sealed you to the day of redemption. You belong to him. He has sealed you. It says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you. Now, remember the first thing he said, let no corrupt words proceed out of your mouth. 
Now he gives us more detail. Wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, let it be put away from you. With all malice. Malice is a desire to hurt someone. If there is, is, is no place at church for something in particular, it would be malice. Maybe you get upset. Maybe you say something you wish you didn't say. But saying something just to hurt someone. And maybe not even in the moment. Maybe saying it to hurt them down the road. No place with, uh, with all malice, he says. And be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. This is the interaction that God wants us to have. That we would be able to step on one another's toes and be kind and forgiving about it. Listen to what Jesus said about fruit, because we're going to get into the fruit of the Spirit now, right? And we're going to talk about how the fruit of the Spirit has to do with this whole idea of being contentious. So Jesus said in Matthew 12, 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. So these nine fruits of the Spirit that we're going to look at, or the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, however you want to say it, that we're going to look at, helps us to know that the tree is good. And it will specifically deal with the way we're treating people around us. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. How do we get fruit? We don't get fruit by trying to grow fruit. The one, one of the fruits is goodness. Another one is kindness. We, we don't gain goodness and kindness by going, I'm going to be more kind. I'm going to be nicer. I'm going to be good to people. We get it by attaching to the vine. We get it by walking in the spirit. We get it by being with Jesus. In Matthew 7, 16 through 20, Jesus said about fruit again, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. It is by our fruits that we are known to the people that are around us. Now, you remember that last week he gave us that list of the works of the Spirit. And the works of the Spirit there is in the plural works of the Spirit, meaning that you could do any number of them. The first four were sexual. And then he talked about anger and, and contentiousness. And he gave that list that's there. And then at the end of it, he added, and the like, of which those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if we are walking in a way that we are practicing the works of the flesh, just because you have one of them doesn't mean you're going to have the other ones. But if you are practicing these things, then it, it's time to evaluate where you are in your real walk and faith with Christ. But then we pick it up in verse 22. And here's our text. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now, I've heard something several times and 
since I was able to study this passage, I really dived in to see whether or not it was true. And that is that the fruit of the Spirit is love and the other eight are aspects of love. And I looked into it. Like I said, I've heard this several times. I looked into it and I cannot verify it. I just can't get to the place where I find anything that supports that particular idea. Love is one of the great things in the world, right? Now there is faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So love starts the list for a reason. You could also say that love has all these other aspects to them. You could say that love is joyful. Love is peaceful. Love is long-suffering. Love is kind. Love is good. Love is faithful. Love is gentle. Love causes you to have self-control. So you could say that all of the rest of these show an aspect of love. But was Paul trying to say the fruit of the Spirit is love? Or was he trying to say the fruit of the Spirit is all of these things that are combined? I was able to confirm through the lexicon of the New Testament that, that the fruit here is in the singular. And I realized that we use fruit in both plural and singular. We, we say, you know, uh, what a nice bowl of fruit. We don't say, what a nice bowl of fruits. Why, how many good fruits you've got in that bowl. I realize that. But when we're dealing with Greek and we're not dealing with English, right? And so in the Greek, you can use the word plural for fruit. There, or you could put, put it in the plural. Here it's in the singular, the fruit of the Spirit. So from that, people have assumed or made the point that it's love. I don't know. I don't see any evidence for it. I think we're seeing this whole thing as a package. If we walk in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is going to be in our lives. All of these different aspects are going to be there. I don't think that we're going to walk in the Spirit and have the fruit of the Spirit where we're very long-suffering, but we're the meanest people on the face of the earth. All of these come together as one fruit in our lives that show who we really are in walking with Christ. So the fruit of the Spirit is love. This is um, the word agape. It is love that is a decision. We often, uh, a husband will often say, well, I just don't love her anymore. That's a feeling. When the Bible says husbands love your wives, it's not saying husbands have a fond affection for your wives. It is interesting to me that the Bible does say to women, women love your husbands, and it's the word phileo, the friendship love for women. Women have a fondness for your wife, but for men, it's that agape love. What God wants from us is that we will love our wives the way that Christ loved the church, and he died for the church. And we are supposed to love our wives in that way. And one of the biggest fallacies that we need to fight against in marriage is, and I hear this, I would, I would love her and I would die for her if she would just do her part. She's supposed to obey. She's supposed to submit. And if she would just do that, I'd love her and I'd die for her. Don't you worry about her. Let God worry about her. And don't you worry about him, ladies. Let God worry about him. Well, if he'd love me, I could submit to him, but I can't love him. Not that man. I can't do it. I can't submit to him. Not him. Not him. It's our own areas in those particular places. 
And so love is an action. If you say, I don't love, if you're a husband, you say, I don't love my wife. And we're talking about that agape love. We're not talking about phileo. We're not talking about eros. We're not talking about sturge. All those are other Greek words for love. Greek is a very colorful language and has more words for one word than the English word has. I say, I love my wife and I love, uh, um, I don't know, In-N-Out Burger. And I love my wife differently than I love In-N-Out Burger. And, and lately it's been five guys and not In-N-Out Burger for me, by the way. So I'm making, making a slight change. Um, so the love here is, if, if a husband says, I don't love my wife, our response to him is, well, then you're in sin because you are supposed to love your wife. That's a decision to love her. And you say, well, well, how can I do that? What does that look like? Well, 1 Corinthians 13. And I want to read this to you. And I know you know it well. This is the definition of love. Though I speak, this is 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verse 1, and we'll go through 7. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries and knowledge, and though I have all faith so I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And then we get love. Love suffers long. Or, as some Bibles will put it, love is patient. You say, well, I'll suffer, but why do I have to suffer long? Because that's patience. It goes, it goes on. Love suffers long and is kind. And then you say, well, I can suffer long, but do I have to be kind while I suffer long? Love suffers long and is kind, even though you are patient. When you begin to talk to people about conflicts, when, and the Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers, and God needed to bless the peacemakers because when you get in the middle of two people that are after each other, it's tough. By the way, there's also another proverb that says a man that gets involved where he doesn't belong in somebody else's dispute is like taking a dog by the ears. It'd be like walking up to that stray dog that looks a little bit sketchy, grabbing that dog by the ears. So you think I'm going to get involved in this situation. Well, maybe you should wait till you're invited to get involved in a situation. But blessed are the peacemakers because oftentimes that's what we need to do is to get in and get them to see this clearly. So love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Instead, you're happy that someone else is blessed, that there's blessings in their lives. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Again, not doing things out of selfish ambition, not showing off to cause envy. On one side, it doesn't envy, but the other side, it doesn't cause envy. And this is, is something to be spoken to for all of us through Facebook. Be careful that you don't Facebook brag. And, 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 and try to have some reality. You pick the best pictures. You guys all look at me like, don't go here. Don't go here now. I'm going. All right, I'm going to go there. I'm going there. We, we post pictures a lot of times to get envy from it. It's like just posting so people will go, wow, look where they're at. Look where they're, look what they're doing. And um, it's um, face bragging, Facebook bragging that happens. Love doesn't parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. Our world teaches us to seek our own. 
You make sure you take care of yourself because nobody else is going to. And God says, don't seek your own way because I will take care of you. Seek the kingdom of God, Jesus said, and all of these things will be added unto you. Love is not provoked. That's interesting. Love is not provoked, meaning someone can do provoking things. But if you really love them, you're not provoked. It thinks no evil. In other words, it believes the person. They might, there, there might be evil there, but you're believing the best in them. Does not rejoice in iniquity. When you find out that there is iniquity in their lives, you don't rejoice over that iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things. By believing all things, it doesn't mean that you're going to believe every lie that is told, but it means you believe in that person. Even if they're doing something that is wrong, you believe that they're going to be able to work that out. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And then the very beginning of the next verse says, love never fails. And when I do weddings, that's the passage I read. And when I get to that part, I say, if you guys can somehow build your marriage especially the early years on these principles, your marriage will not fail much more than that. It will excel. It will be an example of what God wants. And if you find yourself in trouble inside of a marriage now, love is the answer. These things are the answer to truly see that struggle through. No wonder he starts with love. No wonder it is the beginning of the fruit. And then there is joy. This is not happiness. Happiness is connected to what happens to you. Happiness, what happens to you, happenstance, is connected to happiness. This is a deep down joy that is the joy of Christ that God gives us by the fruit of his spirit. Even when circumstances aren't good, the same is true with peace. My peace I give to you, Jesus said, it's a peace that the world does not understand. It's that strange peace that even when your world's going sideways, you find that peace because God's taking care of you. You know it's God. Long-suffering, which is the word for patience. Love is long-suffering. And when you have the fruit of the Spirit, you are patient or you are growing in patience. And, and, and this is kind of a sliding scale, isn't it? Because some of you guys come into Christianity without any patience at all. And I'm going to raise my hand along with that, all right? Without any patience at all. It still amazes me how impatient I am with tedious tasks. I can sit down and study for, for hours and love it and just pour into it. But as soon as I've got to sit down and start formatting something, putting things in a proper place to get them, I just get annoyed. I'm like, I just don't want to be doing this right now. It's going to take me 10 minutes. Just settle down. So it's a sliding scale and your patience is going to grow. You might come in with less and it might take you longer to get the patience in your life. Kindness. And here we really solve the contentious issue by the time we get to kindness. If I have a problem with you, if you've said something mean to me, if I've said something mean to you, if I've treated you in a way that was careless and you are kind, it's going to solve the problem. Or if you come back at me and I am kind and say, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that it would hurt you. And, and maybe you'll go, yeah, right. Okay, well, I'd just be trying to be honest. But kindness is one of those keys. 
It's hard to continue to be mean to someone who is kind. However, don't be passive aggressive. Really be kind. When people put a smile on their face and in a kind way say something mean, it's more brutal than anything else. Just that the passive aggressive is, is not kindness, all right? It is passive aggressive. So you've got to be careful that you're not like, I am being kind to you, you know? You've got to be careful that you're not passive aggressive with your kindness, that it is a genuine kindness, that you're not saying something mean with a smile on your face. And then when people go, I can't believe you said that, you say, what? I was being nice to you. Yeah, everybody knows you weren't. I shouldn't say everybody, but, but sooner or later, everybody will. It takes a, us a while sometimes to catch on to passive aggressiveness. But kindness, goodness, being good to people, being good. I, I, I believe with all of my heart that what God cares about most for us is the way we interact with one another. I believe with all my heart that what God cares most about for you is the way you interact with the people in your life. We think it's what we do. You, you talk, talk to somebody who's struggling with smoking and they're like, oh, God hates that I smoke. It's the biggest problem that I've got. And I wonder, yeah, is it really? Is it really the biggest problem? Or could God be dealing worried more about how you're interacting with the people that are around you? Goodness, faithfulness, being, being that faithful man, being that faithful woman gentleness. Again, we talk about kindness. Gentleness is another way to just calm things down. A harsh answer turns away wrath. And gentleness would be that sign. And then self-control. And if this is the fruit of the Spirit, that we're walking by the Spirit, then we're not going to get out of control when we're walking in the Spirit. And it also tells us, by the way, that we can reverse this. If I have no self-control, if I'm not gentle, if I'm not faithful, if I'm not good, if I'm not kind, if I'm not patient, if I don't have any peace, I don't have any joy, then I'm not walking in the Spirit. So what is the way to fix it? To walk in the Spirit. To say, Lord, I, I really need help to be able to walk in the Spirit. Because if you don't have those things, you can be sure you're walking by the flesh. And if you walk by the flesh, it's going to go on to say, from the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. If you walk in the Spirit... From the Spirit, you will have life. Now, verse 24. Now, remember, the context of this is contentions in the churches in the region of the Galatians, of Galatia. And so he says, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's interesting that he uses the term crucify. They live in a very Roman world. They live in a place where they have seen people crucified. Earlier in chapter 2, he had said, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but it is Christ that lives in me. Someone who was crucified eventually died, but they hung on the cross for a long time. Jesus was the exception in that he hung on the cross and died within six hours. Most people lasted days on the cross. So when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, He's saying, I am taking my flesh, my desires, my goals, and I'm crucifying them. I will no longer live for myself. I will now live for Christ and I will live for other people around me. Folks, this is 
This is the key to what real Christian living is all about, that you are no longer pampering to your flesh, pampering to yourself. And when you crucify your flesh, it's still alive. It hasn't died. It's just crucified. It still wants what it wants, but it's, it's on the cross. And, and crucifying your flesh makes it powerless. He says, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. That's his way of saying that when you are genuinely in Christ, you are not living a selfish lifestyle for your own desires. It doesn't mean you're never going to fail. And I hate that I continue to have to put those caveats out there because we ought to know that, right? The Bible says, if anybody says they don't have any sin, they're lying. And I love the way that's worded. It's almost like the Bible saying, if you say you don't have any sin, your real problem is you're a liar. That's your problem. You actually have sin, you're a liar. It's one of your main problems. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean we don't blow. It doesn't mean we don't need to repent. Doesn't mean we don't need to nail that flesh back up to that cross from time to time. When over a period of time, we begin to live for ourselves again. But it means we are now living for Christ. We are now living for others. We're living for people around us. Philippians chapter two, do nothing through selfish ambition, but put the interest of others above your own interest. Let, let us not only look out for our own interest, but look out for the interest of others, it says in the same chapter. It's not that we don't look out for our own interest. It's not that we don't take care of ourselves or our family, but we now are living for other people as well. And even putting other people's interests above our own interests. Look for very practical ways to carry these things out. Look for practical ways in your home to carry it out. Look for practical ways at work to carry it out. And then he gives this statement. If we live in the spirit, we will also walk in the spirit. So in other words, it's possible you can say, well, I live in the spirit. But you're not doing what you're supposed to do in the spirit. I shared this story before. Years ago, there was a gal who was divorcing her husband and didn't have a biblical right to divorce, had developed a relationship with another guy. So I'm at Chipotle eating my burrito by myself. She sees me there. She comes in, she sees me. She sits down with me and she's like, I'm glad I saw you here. I have something very important to tell you. I want you to know that I am still spiritual. I'm very spiritual. She's left her husband. She's got another relationship now. I'm very spiritual. And I'm like, I just want to eat my burrito in peace. That's, no, it's <laughs> what I wanted to say. But what I said was, well, then your actions would show it. You can say you're spiritual, but your actions would show it. If you live in the spirit, you'll walk in the spirit. Don't think you're living in the spirit if you're not walking in the spirit. If you live in the spirit, you're going to walk in the spirit. And that's going to cause you to have to make some decisions that you might not want to make. Like what was the right thing for her to do? I'm not saying the right thing for her to do was just to ignore difficulties or problems that they had in their marriage. I, I wasn't saying you get back in that marriage and you just be the good little wife you're supposed to be. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying if things are bad enough for there to be a separation, a divorce, then there's some problems in the marriage. Now, whose problems they are, who knows? Those things that have to be sussed out. Probably both, but more one than another, most likely. It's just the way things are. Rarely is it exactly 50-50. I've seen 51-49 before. 
But if you live in the spirit, you're going to walk in the spirit. And this takes all excuses away. If you've got, if you're living for the flesh and you're living for fleshly things, then you can't say I'm living in the spirit. No, you're, you're, you're not. You got to walk in the spirit too. And then to help us to understand again, the context, he comes to verse 26. So the same thing he said as he gave us this passage about the flesh and the spirit and the works of the spirit and the, the fruit of the flesh. I mean, the fruit of the, the spirit and the works of the flesh. I had those reversed. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another. By the way, one of the best ways to provoke people, and people are very good at it when they're good at it, is passive aggressiveness, right? And then it says envying one another because envy can cause all kinds of problems too. Now, a few things in closing. Do everything in your power to keep peace, the bond of unity within your life within your church. That's what the church is supposed to be. We are to love one another. And that's to be the sign to the non-believers that we are genuinely his disciples. The love that we have for one another. Does that mean that everybody in the church is uh, gonna just, you're gonna be fine with them, that they're not gonna rub you the wrong way? Does that mean you won't have personality conflicts? Nope, there'll be personality conflicts. There'll be people who do and say things that are rude. But if they do, what did Peter tell us? Don't revile for revilings. If someone reviles you, then you love back. You do the things that Christ does. In fact, when someone is rude to you in church, they're not supposed to be. It's an opportunity for you now to do the things here in love. It's the opportunity for you to respond out of love towards those who are rude. Number two, you gain these fruits by walking in the Spirit. You don't gain these fruits by trying to be gooder or kinder or patienter, patienting, patienter. I guess you can't say it right when you're on purpose saying it wrong, right? You, you do it by walking in the Spirit. So what we take away from this is, Lord, I want to walk with you tonight and I want to walk with you tomorrow and I want to walk with you the next day. And these fruits will be the fruit that is in your life. This is not about, boy, you guys better be nicer. You better be gentler. You better, it's not about that. It's about walking in the spirit. And finally, crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. This is probably a very deliberate moment that Paul's talking about. When Paul says, I've crucified my flesh with its passions and desires and I've been crucified with Christ. Where we say, I will not live for my own passions, but I will now live for Christ. I am not going to live for my passions. I'm going to walk in the spirit. I'm going to live for other people. It's a, it's a decision you've got to make. It's a, it's a commitment that you make unto God. That's how you crucify your flesh. I am not going to live for it. Now, will that flesh crawl off the cross and have to be renailed back on the cross again? Probably. We are dealing with your flesh that you have been pampering a long time, like your entire life, right? Most of it. And so you make that decision. I am going to be the person who lives for other people and not for my own desires. And in this, we become whom God wants us to be. And the church becomes that place that cares for people, that is full of tenderness and compassion and forgiveness and becomes the place that God really wants it to be.
Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, forgive us when we, in our self-seeking, even envy, our own desires, have uh, put other people down, have hurt people, have said things that are mean in our carelessness. Lord, help us to be the church you want us to be, the individuals within the church. Help us to be who we know other people should be. Even as you said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Let us truly live that way. And Lord, take care of the contentions and the strife that is among us, that these things would be put away for your sake. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.